This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, and welcome to part two of my conversation with University of Texas professor James Vaughn about the American Revolution and its global context. So it sounds like you're suggesting that this really wasn't a situation in which it was America versus Britain. It was two people within the empire debating how that empire ought to be run. Can you point to any other places within the British Empire in which a similar debate was taking place? Yes, that's an excellent point, that it should not be seen as mother country versus colony or American versus British, but rather debate taking place throughout the British Empire about what the future of the British Empire is. And that debate involved people and ideas that were not just British, but beyond the boundaries of the British Empire, from across the Atlantic world, and indeed beyond the Atlantic world. A good example, to sort of answer your question, is that around the same time that the colonial resistance movement is beginning in the 1760s, and the revolution breaks out in 1774 and 1775, is also the period of the origins of the British Empire in India. And principally in northeastern India, in the richest province in the Mughal Empire, Bengal. In Bengal, the East India Company has become a sovereign power. It's transformed from a commercial corporation to a sovereign state. And the British are confronting British ministers, officials, merchants, how to govern this new empire. And there's actually debates in Calcutta and debates in the boardrooms of the East India Company on Leadenhall Street in London and debates in Parliament over how this empire should be governed. And many people are arguing that this empire needs to be free and open, that there has to be free trade in India, that to some degree, British subjects and Asian subjects and indigenous subjects have to be included in processes of governing, that colonists have to be sent out so Europeans and Asians can mix and create a cosmopolitan society, but ultimately that position loses out. And the position that wins out in the boardrooms of the East India Company and in the committee meetings of the East India Company in Calcutta and in the British political classes, this create a more authoritarian empire where a small British bureaucratic and military cadre through a largely indigenous sepoy army govern in a despotic fashion uh, these vast territorial acquisitions in northeastern India and pump out land revenues from those acquisitions. And this kind of development reverberates throughout the empire. That is, there are people in Ireland, there are people in Virginia, there are people in Massachusetts deeply disaffected by this kind of authoritarianism brewing in India. And in fact, a lot of scholars read this wrong because a lot of scholars point out that oh, look at all of these American pamphlets making references to Nawabs or Nizams in India and how they refuse to be like that. And scholars read this as some kind of ethnocentrism or even some suggest sort of racism or Orientalism, which it isn't at all. What they're actually suggesting is that the kind of empire that's being built in British India doesn't carry the kind of rights and representation and political transparency that the empire has carried elsewhere. And they fear that this might be a new form that will come to them. And so invariably, colonial radicals interpret increasingly authoritarian and increasingly militaristic and increasingly bureaucratic British imperial measures in North America, like the Quartering Act, like the Stamp Act, like the Intolerable Acts, as part of a spirit, a new spirit of imperialism that it's manifesting itself even more strongly in British India in Bengal with this despotic authoritarian military state that's being set up. And so you get people in America saying, we will not be Nawabs 
and they don't mean anything Orientalist by it. What they mean by it is we will not accept despotic governors that rule above our society instead of in collaboration with and through our society. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is that the American Revolution was not as unique and national as we like to believe it, but in fact, part of a larger and very ordinary debate that was taking place within the empire as a whole. That's absolutely right. And it was a debate that was informed not just by ideas that were brewed in the empire, but brewed in this wider cauldron of a transatlantic world of the Enlightenment and of the public sphere and of new urban forms of sociability. Hmm. And that's exactly right. And there are two questions at the heart of the American Revolution. The first question is, what is the future of the British Empire? Right. And it's not that it's the British and the Americans have different answers to that. Rather, some conservatives and reactionaries have one set of answers to the future of the British Empire and some radicals have another set of answers to the future of the British Empire. And it happens to be that the conservatives and reactionaries win out in the metropolis. They win out in the mother country. They win out in Britain and they also win out in India, but they lose out in North America. But because the conservatives and reactionaries win out in the commanding heights of the British Empire, in London itself, it becomes necessary for the radicals to break from the British Empire, right? Really, I mean, if I could just stay on this point a bit, the colonial resistance movement does not view itself in isolation. It emerges at almost exactly the same time as Wilkesite and parliamentary reformist movements in Britain in the 1760s. There's a wide sense of the British imperial state, both at home and abroad, being inadequate to the new commercial and enlightened and manufacturing world of the mid to late 18th century. And there are many people, not just the colonial planters, lawyers, doctors, merchants of North America, but also middling sort and plebeian groups artisans, shopkeepers, middling merchants in Britain itself demanding reform, the transformation of political institutions so as to make them more responsive to, more representative of this new kind of society, that civil society has developed and changed, and now the state and the political institutions have to be more responsive and more representative of it. And the cry of no taxation without representation is as much a cry of Wilkesites and reformers and members of the society, the supporters of the Bill of Rights, the SSBR, one of the first major organizations of parliamentary reform that's founded in 1760s Britain, that's as much of their cry as it is colonial radicals. And so this was really a pan-British cry, but it was also a cry taking place in the transatlantic world. It was a cry taking place by radical enlightenment and patriot figures in Rotterdam, in Amsterdam, in Paris, in Lyon, in Naples, in Geneva all over this world. So really, that's that's what's at stake. Fundamentally, if you could put it this way, the American Revolution was about three things. First, it was about the democratization of the British state. It was part of a broader movement across the whole empire and indeed across much of the Atlantic for democratization and particularly democratization of the British state. And that question, would the British state be democratized? Here, I mean democracy in the 18th century sense, not necessarily in our sense, right? Would the British state be democratized opened a second question was, what was the future of the British Empire? And behind all of these other things was this profound question of, were the political forms of the 18th century Atlantic world adequate to the kind of new society that come into being in that world? So given this new interpretation of the American Revolution that you're proposing, that it's a real transatlantic imperial moment as much as a national one, how would you describe 
the meaning of the American Revolution? The preface I'll say to giving a meaning to the American Revolution is, I really think the American Revolution should be, as you said, seen as part of this wider transatlantic process. I really think that it should be seen as part of an age of revolution and not an age of revolution that begins in 1789 or even begins in 1776, but rather an age of revolution that begins in the 1750s and 60s when the old regime, including both the absolute monarchies of France and Austria and the British parliamentary system, uh, begin to experience a lot of crisis and upheaval. And these crises and upheavals could have been transcended. They've been transcended before. But this time they weren't transcended. In fact, they opened up processes of revolutionary change. And these processes of revolutionary change gave birth to the constitutional republic or the democratic republic. And the essence of that process was that unlike prior political revolts, it wasn't simply the case that you could make adjustments to the existing political system, as the Glorious Revolution had did, by taking one part of that political system, the traditional parliament, and raising it to a supremacy over the monarchy and ending absolute monarchy. That was an incredibly important change that the Glorious Revolution introduced. But the American Revolution was part of this wider revolutionary epoch, stretching from the 1760s to 1840s. The fundamental achievement of which was not just to make an adjustment of pre-existing institutions, but to wipe the slate clean and to reconstitute, to literally constitute a new world, to begin the world anew. And that's really the kind of the most important achievement of which the American Revolution is the first of that revolutionary epoch stretching up to the 1840s, which is really wiping away all prior existing institutions, the whole state apparatus of the British Empire, just like the whole state apparatus of old regime France in 1789, the whole state apparatus of the British Empire begins to be deconstructed and replaced. But it's not just replaced ad hoc, it's replaced on the idea of an objectified, written constitution, which provides a framework for a democratic republic of ever-expanding participation. And what I think people wrongly interpret the constitutional achievement as is they interpret it as like a straitjacket where um, essentially you're held in place by some document like, you know, Washington and, and Madison and Jay and all these guys like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai delivered the Ten Commandments and never can change. No, that's quite the opposite. These men of the Enlightenment and women, too, in this process believed above all in the fact the world could change. But that the world needed to be subject to self-conscious change, to people rationally and openly debating the fundamental principles of their society and setting up rules for how society changed itself. And so a constitutional republic was about setting down a framework with which everyone in society, even the illiterate, could know. There is no more arcane imperii. There are no more secrets of empire, secrets of the crown. Affairs of state are no longer the product of those noble of birth or blood, but are the product of anyone who can read or had read to them the principles of the framework of their polity, of their constitution. And thus, by having those principles read to them, those principles can then be subject to a reflective process of ever-expanding debate. Are those principles right? Do those principles grant voting and powers to the appropriate amount of people? Should more people be included? Should they be changed? So really, constitutions were frameworks for societies to have a continual debate, critique, discussion about the nature of those societies themselves and to make them susceptible to change without being destroyed or dissolving. 
if that makes sense. And so that was the the greatest achievement of the American Revolution and, and really set the stage for this revolution epoch was the constitutional democratic republic that allowed people to, for the first time, understand the fundamental principles of their government so as to be able to subject those principles to an ongoing, never-ending discussion and debate. Well, those are all things we'll have to consider on the next 4th of July as we, <laughs> uh, as we commemorate our, our national holiday. Uh, Professor James Vaughn, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Henry. I really appreciate the time. And this has been another episode of 15-Minute History, and we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.